0: Great. Uh, So ethics equals values squared. Why is it that focusing on our values actually also delivers value to our organisation? Recently, Deloitte's have published a study into this and they've done some rigorous economic modelling around what would it mean if Australia lifted our ethical performance to that of those who are perceived to be the leaders of the world? What would it mean to our GDP? The bottom line was $45 billion dollars. Um, thinking about less compliance and how much we spend on that, the improvement in mental health and what that would mean, the improvement in wages and what that would mean. Uh, And it's a really inspiring study because it's the first time we've had rigorous economic modelling and access to extensive data sets to come up with this sort of case. So today I'd like to explore just a couple of aspects of that. But before I start, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land upon which we meet today um, and... The, the traditional owners of Gardens Point campus of QUT, where I prepared this, are the Turbul and Yagara people. Anyone tell me who the people are for this particular site? Yagara. as well. And QUT acknowledges the important role that they play in our university community. And our campus has always been a place of teaching, research and learning. Okay, so in order to explore ethics today, I'd like you to come on a journey with me. And let's start in a very busy, emergency room of a city hospital. We have a nurse who has, is, is dealing with a lot of patients and has noticed that the prescription given for a particular patient looks like it might be calibrated a little bit high, given the patient's history and age and other conditions. The doctor, the specialist who has recommended it, has left probably in the car on the way home or at home asleep after another busy day Does she question it? She thinks back to the last nurse that questioned that particular doctor's prescriptions and what happened to them, how they were publicly humiliated and denigrated in front of everyone, how special surgeons consultants do not like their authority to be questioned by mere nurses. Does she say anything? Across the world now, two young co-pilot in the cockpit of a passenger plane. He and his senior officer are preparing to take off The plane has recently had a newly introduced computerized system. Now this is in a culture where your age and seniority in terms of rank are incredibly important. Uh, That's the culture of this country. After they take off, our young co-pilot notices that he thinks that the pilot might be misinterpreting the new computerized system and gradually turning the plane upside down. He's junior in status, he's junior in years. You don't question your commanding officer in those circumstances and his performance will be reviewed at the end of every flight. Does he speak up? Who knows the story? He didn't, did he? Korean Airlines. And that's when Korean Airlines found that they had a real problem, a culture problem that was completely inconsistent with their compliance, their regulation and everything they said that they stood for in terms of safety. So let's move to our next scene. You'd all recognise this one, Columbia, Space Shuttle Columbia. It takes off on its mission and one of the shuttle engineers notices what he thinks looks like some insulation that has come adrift during launch may have knocked against the wing. Can't be sure, the pictures are grainy. What he'd like to do is to access the film, some film of the shuttle to determine whether or not any of the insulation has been moved. But in order for NASA to do that, they have to ask for cooperation from the Air Force, from the Defence Force, um, because they'd have to use spy satellites. Now, that's not prohibitively expensive. It's not logistically impossible. It's just really uncomfortable. They just don't do that sort of thing. So he writes an email to his um, immediate supervisor explaining the case, explaining what he, what he wants to explore and why they need the pictures. And he, and he puts it in bold type how important he thinks it is that they explore this safety um, risk. And he, he starts to understand that this is not going to happen. This is not going to happen. NASA are not going to ask defence for help. He has to think about what he could do next. He writes in boldface again in capitals an email being scathing about how not listening to him and not letting them do this is completely inconsistent with all those posters around the place about safety is the most important thing here. If it's not safe, speak up. And he sends that email to his mates, the other engineers. He does not send it up the chain against his supervisor. Over the next few days when they have mission critical meetings reviewing the progress of the shuttle, he sits there hoping somebody more senior, more knowledgeable, more experienced has noticed this and has raised it and it is being investigated. What happens? It disintegrated on re-entry. Nobody else noticed it. Nobody else raised it. And many lives were lost. Anybody remember what he said when he was interviewed by the popular press following that incident? He said, but I'm just a, I'm just a lowly engineer, and she, <coughs> the person that was in command, is right up here. There is no way I could ever talk to her. Were these people unethical? A nurse? An engineer? A co-pilot? None of them are unethical in their intentions, in their personality, there'd be nothing to suggest that, yet here we have really, really difficult, unethical outcomes. So, what I'd like to explore with you today is what is ethical thinking? And as importantly, how do we encourage it for maximum value in your organisation? How do you do it? What could you do differently tomorrow? This afternoon, when you walked out of this room, that might mean you improve the chances that you and your team deliver more ethical thinking and as a result, more ethical outcomes. So let's start with what is ethical thinking? How we think we make decisions. So this is um, a, a very simple diagram of Joan's moral intensity model of thinking, ethical thinking, and this has informed ethics research for many, many years, it's the reason that we have so much compliance and training around ethical behavior and so many punishments for unethical behavior. And it's based on the premise that it's a cognitive rational process. That we walk along and we recognize a moral issue, then we make a decision, well that's that there's a right and a wrong way to do this, then we establish our moral intent. we are going to act morally and we're going to change, we're going to affect the outcome and then we engage in our moral behavior. And that is a rational cognitive process that we go through. And the two fundamental assumptions of that way of thinking and it underpins most of the way society is organized in our culture is that ethical decision-making is that rational cognitive process and it can be taught. You can teach somebody to do those four things. And then secondly, if people aren't doing those things, it's because they're greedy, they have poor character, they have bad values. The fundamental assumption of our thinking about ethics to this point in time has been that bad people do bad things. Weed out the bad apples, re-educate everybody about character and values and what we stand for and what we want to achieve and then we punish unethical people, strong deterrence for unethical behaviour. Does it work? What do a Cricket ball, $100 note, my grandma's slippers have in common. The three huge ethical travesties that we've seen in Australia in the last two years, the Aged Care Commission, the Banking Inquiry, and the Cricket Australia scandal. Was there any absence of regulation or punishment or stated values or, no. So what's going wrong? How we really make decisions. For the purpose of this explanation in this short time frame, I've decided to use three basic questions. Ethical decision making, ethical thinking revolves around these three questions What's right? And what's right is, can be uh, defined by, for example, your religion. If that's what motivates you as an individual, you might say, Well, my religious code is the most important way that I will make a decision. Israel Flower might be, um, might ascribe to that that when he was put in a situation where he had a whole lot of competing things, his religious convictions is what guided his decision-making and his actions. Um, The ancient ethical uh, masters around Kant and Aristotle and virtue ethics and command and divine and all of those universalism theories are all examples of that. People trying to explore what motivates people, what they think is right. And a lot of it had to do with religion. What's good on the other hand is what businesses look to. Outcomes, utilitarian thinking. Anybody help us understand what that is? Yep, yep. Yeah, exactly. Most good for the most number. So the maximum benefits for the maximum number of people. Utilitarian thinking underpins our law. Um, I'm a lawyer in a previous life and it underpins a lot of our policy around how we ought to regulate behaviour. What brings the maximum happiness to the maximum number? And John Stuart Mill and Jeremy Bentham are famous for that sort of thinking. If you're thinking that this sort of Kantinism and Aristotelian virtues and utilitarian thinking is old hat and irrelevant, have a think about autonomous vehicles. That's our most relevant contemporary example. We're all struggling with how to program them. Every country is thinking about how would we program an autonomous vehicle if it had a choice, if it had to make a choice. On one side, we have five people on a pedestrian crossing. On the other side, we have one person on the pavement. Should we program our autonomous vehicles to avoid the five people and kill the one person on the basis of a utilitarian outcome, that it would be better for the maximum number of people? Does it matter if the five people on the pedestrian crossing are children and the one person on the pavement is a criminal? Does it matter what age they are? Does it matter what culture they are? How do we make those moral judgments and decisions in a moment of crisis? Now, interestingly, if you look at the way different countries are dealing with this, utilitarianism is is dominating the decision-making and programming of artificial intelligence in Western nations, but in Germany, They prefer a Kantian way of thinking, that to kill people is just wrong. To change an outcome to intentionally kill that person over there would be wrong. Every single person has a 50-50 chance at life. Therefore, we will not interfere and program our vehicles to deliver utilitarian outcomes. But it's the most relevant thinking in artificial intelligence and programming in today's world. So this is not old Greek stuff. It's really relevant now, just we don't have much time to think about it. So if that's what's right and what's good, what's fitting? That's culture. That's how things are done around here. Shared norms, rituals, culture and context. Is that as important as the other two? Do you think? Who thinks it is? Here's an example. Robin Hood, what did he do? the answers on the slide. He robbed from the rich to give to the poor. Was it right? (laughs) Well, whether it's right or not is going to be a question of legality. Was it against the law to rob people? Yep. Yep. So it was illegal. So the answer to that should be no, it was wrong. Was it a good outcome? Now we come back to it depends. Why? Well, we had a corrupt... Regime who weren't going to share their wealth with the disempowered, disenfranchised, disaffected, and disappointed unless they were forced to. There was nothing going to change that that balance of power unless somebody intervened and changed it. So the argument was, unless somebody does something about this, the poor are going to keep starving, and the rich are going to keep getting richer, and life is going to be miserable. So that's one way of looking at. Was it a good outcome? Some people would say yes. Was it contextually fitting? Did people think it was a good idea? But that was the way things had to be done. Yeah, and so we find the robber, the outlaw, the thief, the criminal becomes the hero of the story. And the sheriff of Nottingham, our law enforcement officer becomes the villain. See how important context can be in the way we think through options available to us. So how does that apply then in an organisational sense? How do we bring this together in the way that we frame our policies, our procedures and our way of thinking about what we do? What's right would be our values and principles? An army has some fabulous values and they're very well stated and I know them well because I use them in the Cove plus unit that I created. Codes of conduct, you have lots of those. Policies, procedures. You, like all organisations, try to make it clear to people Way to do things, what's not okay. What's good? That would be your organisational vision, your strategic plan, your targets. For commercial organisations, it would be their budgetary goals. How are we going to make money to stay afloat? No mission without margin. Unless we're making money, we can't continue to employ people and do what we do. And then what's fitting? The way things are done around here. Shared norms, shared stories, legends, rituals. How do you be a financial advisor in Queen Street? How do you be a lawyer in Queen Street? How do you be a specialist surgeon? Those sorts of rituals that also influence our behaviour. Does that make sense? Okay. What else is going on? Now, you've had quite a few presentations, as I understand it, about neuroplasticity, and neuroscience. And so just pulling out some of that from people who are much better at it than me and know a lot more about the technical side of that than than I do. The first thing is to reinforce is that stress puts us in amygdala hijack. Everyone recognises that term, what that means? Our prehistoric part of the brain, the reptilian part of the brain, is at the back here, the amygdala. And the neocortex, the frontal lobe, The part that is capable of higher-order thinking is at the front here. So this bit at the back, the amygdala, that's where the fight-and-flight response sits. I'm walking along a path, I see something that looks like a snake, I jump out of the way. Instinctive responses, not intentional, just instinctive. I haven't had time to think about it. That's what the caveman does. Up here at the front, the neocortex, that's our Nelson Mandela, capable of much higher-order thought processes and outcomes. But what happens when we get into a stress situation is we have this amygdala hijack. All the blood is blocked by the caveman. The caveman basically starves out our Nelson Mandela when we need him most to help us to come up with, with a wise solution. So it's a real physiological fact that stress inhibits our ability for higher order thinking and good outcomes. So stress is a hard environment for ethical thinking. System one thinking is at a vault program. Selena would also, Professor Selena Bartlett would also have talked to you about system one and system two thinking. Yeah, ring a bell. Basically, the Reader's Digest version is that we have two thinking patterns. System one is our default. It's our, we use reflexive patterns of thinking. That means that we tend to do the same things the same way. If it's worked for us in the past, it's a percentage exercise that will work again. And it's a quick and easy way for us to make decisions and it conserves our energy, and that's one of our survival techniques. System two thinking is when we sit down and we really think about every aspect of what's in front of us to come up with a deliberate conclusion. We don't just do what we've done before. Takes lots of effort, takes lots of time, takes lots of energy, and we don't like doing it. We're rationalists with our time, we're all busy. So system one thinking is the default, and that's where most people are operating most of the time unless we consciously encourage, nudge them out of that place with another strategy. We have mirror neurons in our neocortex. Selena would have talked to you about that. Mirror neurons, we sort of monkey see, monkey do. We copy what we see, which means for leadership, leaders really need to model what they want done. They need to do what they say they want you to do, not just say it. You've all heard that expression before. The behavior you walk past is the behavior you accept. So those mirror neurons mean that even physiologically, if there's inconsistency between what leaders are doing and what leaders are saying is important, it will have an impact on the thinking of the people that are around them. And then leaders need to model what they want mirrored. So there's a whole lot of neuroscience and a whole lot more, and I know that Brad over there has a whole lot more neuroscience as well, that he has, um, that he's researched. Uh, but that sort of brings it together how it impacts our ethical thinking. So what does that mean overall, pulling that together? Contextual and situational factors are really important in our ethical thinking. They play a large role in influencing our behavior. Stress diminishes our ability to forecast consequences and to self-regulate. And if you think about that, if you wanted to be a utilitarian, if you wanted to be the model utilitarian, if you're in a stress situation, it's going to be so much harder for you to forecast outcomes. Now, add to that the fact that we live in a VUCA world. Is the army fond of the VUCA acronym? Like universities are? Volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous. Um, Which just means... And it's complex systems that we live in now. It's complex systems thinking we need to negotiate the systems around us. How do you predict outcomes when you're surrounded by that level of complexity? Reflexive thinking is our default program, so unless we intentionally nudge, encourage, and support people to think in system two, it's most likely they're gonna be operating in system one, and confirmation bias. Along with the other 360-something cognitive biases that we display as humans, anybody seen the cognitive bias index? Um, It's quite an extraordinary visual and it explains this 360-something biases that we have as humans. And, of course, we don't know we have them. That's what makes them biases. They're not intentional um, attitudes. They are things that operate under our consciousness. I was horrified. I did one of the Harvard tests on cognitive biases online and found the result that I'm actually biased against uh, women in the workforce. Here I thought I was a huge champion of female equality and women's rights, but it seems that my training, I was a, a lawyer, a litigator for many years, that having come through the legal profession as a, too many of us women in there at the time, has left me with a whole lot of judgments, assumptions and ways of doing things that I was not aware of that have influenced my thinking. So to move myself out of that, I'm having to engage in some really intentional things to try to make sure that those biases aren't in my own thinking around junior women in my workplace now. Yeah, So it's not a judgment, it's not a value judgment on anybody. We all have these things. But leaders who are conscious or, or make an effort to try to uncover what they are will be able to exclude that bias in their, uh, in their decision-making more effectively than people who don't. Okay, so what does all of this mean? Well, the old way of thinking, you remember, is that bad people do bad things. And what we've actually learned from all of our research is that good people can unintentionally create unethical outcomes because of the systems in which we operate. So it brings us even more to the consciousness that creating ethical systems for other people to operate within is really important as leaders in our organisation as much as we can. We're doing a lot of work in that space, at QT at the moment. And it, the approach that we're using is raise the bar and interestingly that's the basis that we use in our COVE Plus unit on um, ethical systems of security. So if you're interested in learning more about that, that's where you'll find it. Okay, so that's a little bit about ethical thinking. Not to depress you, but just to make us all more aware. Um, because we're all doing a really good job of trying to be ethical. We're all going out there every day trying our best to make a positive influence in the world. Now let's harness that. What can we do more of today, tomorrow, to make it easier for our people who are operating in this context? We can't control everything, but we can change the way we show up. So let's think back then to our three examples. How were they thinking at the time? How was our nurse thinking? Excellent, thank you so much. Have you read Professor Amy Edmondson's text, The Fearless Organization? So these examples come from that book. It's a great book, recommend it. She also does a YouTube clip. But that's exactly what she says. That's exactly what she says, that in their thinking around the situation in which they found themselves, their brains overemphasize the harm to them, their ego, their story of their self, their reputation, the way they show up at work. They emphasize that harm and somehow diminished the potential harm to others. Oh, the the doctor knows better than I do, so the patient's going to be all right. The captain knows more than I do. I've just got to trust that this captain has got it right, and I'm the junior, I've got it wrong. The seniors in NASA, of course they're better than I am. They're all more senior than me. Of course they will have noticed this. Somebody will be doing something about it. The harm to them is small, the harm to me is great if I speak up and this happens to me. Yes. Yep. Yes and then yes. Yes. Well, yeah, it doesn't make sense. It's not a rational cognitive process. Yes.
1: Is there an interesting is if it circumstances involved, if it had been a family member, or a member that the nurse was looking at, or there have been you know, wife and kids on the plane, or there have been um, family members involved. Well, I think the actions of the individuals would have been a different place in that proper analysis. So is there an empathy, piece, or is there any study on the ability to empathise and put yourself in other people's situations, uh, changing ethic outcomes?
0: Really good question. Certainly perspective taking is one of the steps in ethical decision-making processes. Being able to think about, and we call it sort of the golden rule, um, how would I feel if somebody else was doing this to me? Um, Trying to take that sort of perspective. But it's a really good point. And how would you measure it? How would you study it? Um, And how would you come to those conclusions? It's It's a valid suggestion that it may make a difference. But then we go back to the point that was just made. It was his own life, not just his family, his own life that was gonna end if he got it wrong. He was more afraid of being shamed and ostracized than he was of dying. I don't have the answer. Yes? I was just thinking back on that and I said, like you mentioned that there
2: was a process in place to get answers that could sort of you know, solve the problems that, that, that man saw. So, did they put
3: too many barriers in place or too hard to get that information did that stopped the hierarchy of China command actually trying kind to of solve the issue?
0: I don't pretend to be an expert on how NASA, NASA works, but the article that I read suggested that it wasn't a difficult process in terms of the funding necessary or the logistics of getting access to the spy satellite to see some film footage of the shuttle to see whether or not the insulation had been moved but there was not an appetite for it politically because they didn't like to ask the Defence Force for help. We're trying to get back to a place where sometimes put certain barriers in place to weed out,
2: uh, I guess, small issues rather than just streamline the process and go
0: through, you know, harder oh than it is. And up until now, we've really thought that that was the way to do things. Let's protect against bad behaviour. The law is based on it. You can't bring in a law that says we're all going to act in good faith because nobody knows what that means. All we can do is define what bad faith is by then precluding all of the activities that would constitute bad faith as we discover those examples. Yes?
1: Uh, Golding, it some work on the visual representation of cognitive data. He uses examples from both space shuttle disasters, he talks about how the way the data around the issues was presented led to it being able to uh, be disregarded, and he actually writes some good stuff about PowerPoint makes us uh, go which is, it's an interesting read, if you think about a scenario where you've got capable on reporting, what might be read at the unit level somehow gets to a very green shade as the data gets aggregated and goes up a hierarchical chart. Um, I think there's some real elements of that of, yes, they might have been this, uh, uh, from what he was looking at, this is a big issue, It then became one of 10 issues, which meant it was a uh, 10%. It then goes up another level, and it's now a 1% issue, and it's not getting the visibility, uh, because there wasn't a fast track for it to get to the visibility. It wasn't an emergency stop now button that he had. And you can see where we've engineered that type of um, uh, range safety where anyone can call stop, stop, stop. You know, how you try and hardwire a process into the neighbours of it. But in a hierarchical organisation that is driven by potentially non factors, it becomes
0: challenging. Thank you. Thank you. So, according to Professor Amy um, Evanson, there's self-harm thinking somehow was prioritised over their potential harm to others, it was diminished. Which leads us to the idea of psychological safety. And that's the phrase that she coins around this particular phenomenon. Psychological safety, she says, is a really important thing for organisations. And for high performance in business, you not only need high psychological safety, you also need a good level of performance pressure. But that quadrant there demonstrates that if you have low psychological safety and high performance pressure, you end up where I was as a junior lawyer, the anxiety zone. And we all know physiologically, that's not a smart place to be operating, but it's a survival place. Um, So our decision-making ability is diminished in that anxiety zone. If we have um, high psychological Um, high performance pressure and high psychological safety. We feel safe to go to new places. That's the learning zone above it. Across to the left, if we've got lots of safety, it's my family business, I'm not going to lose my job anytime soon, and low performance pressure, no real pressure on me to perform, I'm not going to go the extra mile. I'm going to look for new ways of doing things. Innovate. Be exploratory be adventurous, deliver maximum value. And if I've got low psychological safety and low performance pressure, well that's just I'm asleep. Because there's no requirement for me to do anything and I'm not game to move out of this space. So this is sort of the four quadrants that she talks about. What do we mean then by psychological safety? We all understand what performance pressure is, but what does she mean by psychological safety? Who here has done rock climbing? Excellent, you too, please come on down. (laughs) Thank you very much, I really appreciate it. Two days ago I said I'm about to do an experiment, I need some help, who's done rock climbing? Not an arm, not a hand, nothing. So thank you very much for playing with me. Your name? Chris. Chris, welcome, and? Jess. Jess. Okay, who would like to scale the rock face and who wants to belay? Thank you, thank you, Chris. <laughs> so Jess, you're going to climb? Come over here, Jess. Jess is over here. <laughs> Chris, you're, you're, you're over here behind her. So Chris is our belayer, Jess is our climber. Now in front of Jess is this sheer cliff. This is the cliff of the unknown. This is our business goals. This is our what we, are, we need our organisation to go in an unknown world. This huge cliff, no one's ever climbed it before. We've got no idea where the weak spots are. We've got no idea where the strong spots are. We don't know how long it'll take us, and we're the first to do it. So Jess is about to make that climb. Now, what are you wearing, Jess, in a non-weird way to do this? Is there a non-weird uh, way we got past that? Yeah. Uh, probably a harness, some a harness. gear helmet. Okay, and is there a rope somewhere? I'd hope so. And where would that be? Uh, hopefully off the point in the cliff. But around you? Yes. Around you. So it's around you and where does it go to? Uh, high point and then hopefully Chris behind me. To Chris behind you. So Chris has got, what are you wearing, Chris, in a non-weird way?
4: Well, I'll be wearing a harness as well.
0: A harness and the rope is, and what, what, how are you grasping the rope? Do you have?
4: Two hands going through to probably the figure of eight. Okay. Do a safety break maybe.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Everyone got the picture? So Jess now starts to climb this very, very steep rock face. Come on, Jess, come with me. You're doing it so well, though. (laughs) (laughs) And as she gets to this bit here, it starts to crumble beneath her fingers and she starts to get the adrenaline response. Uh, this is crumbling, but I'm, I'm really high up in the air and that's the floor below me. And what happens?
1: I would hold on until she gets a, like a firmer hand or foot grip. Yeah.
4: She can't go any higher, just start lowering it down slowly.
0: Okay, so the, the slack is immediately taken, the rope tightens and you know he's got your back. Your leader, your team, that rope is the psychological safety, which means that she can climb, find weak spots, not be terrified of dying and then manage to do the whole whole journey, come back down and inform the whole team. Here's where the weak spots are. Here's how I navigated them. Here's where not to go. Here's what we could do differently next time. And the whole team can then climb that cliff face quicker, more safely and with confidence because you were encouraged and supported to do it the first time when it was really scary and not safe. Psychological safety is the organisational equivalent of that. Systems that mean that people feel supported to make small intelligent mistakes because it puts you in that learning zone. It's going to be seen not as a personal failure by you but as learning for the organisation that's integral to performance. Thank you so much. A huge hand for our actors. Okay, so everyone's with me on that. That's what we mean by psych safety. Why? Why is this something we think is important for organisations? Well, the Deloitte's report gives you a lot of economic reasons now, which is lovely, but on top of that, physical safety. Physical safety in places like mines and the physical safety in the hospital. The, The examples we've already given. If people feel confident to speak up about things that they've seen, to question what they think might not be quite right, you will end up with better physical safety outcomes. You know, there was a whole movement in our hospitals around open disclosure. Anyone familiar with that? Yeah, what, did it, what was it basically about? Um,
2: well, you need to speak up and you won't be punished for it. Yeah. And you need to report
0: what you said. And the reason it came about was because doctors who made mistakes, we call it iatrogenic injury, people who are who are injured, killed in the course of surgery, accidental deaths, shouldn't have happened, but because the sponge was left in or the wrong artery was nicked or something was done and a person died, um, there was a huge number of these things going on. But they weren't, the number wasn't getting less. And the reason the number wasn't getting less is because nobody talked about the mistakes. Nobody admitted the mistakes, it wasn't safe. It's not safe for doctors to admit that they're fallible. Nobody wants a fallible doctor. In fact, we have this really unreasonable expectation our doctors will be infallible. That's important. And the other part of it was the lawyer's fault because if the lawyers said you won't be covered for your professional indemnity insurance if you admit liability, nobody was allowed to talk about mistakes, which then meant that nobody learned from other people's mistakes, which meant that systems weren't fixed. Do you know that that they did a study over a 30 year period, there were more people having the wrong limbs amputated 30 years later than 30 years before. That was a function of more people having operations and not learning from it. You know the whole Nico 10 thing you have to do because then nobody can make a mistake. So the open disclosure protocol came about to make it safe for doctors to apologize and admit mistakes. And without that whole protocol coming in, it wasn't gonna happen. There were too many contextual, cultural reasons why it couldn't. So safety is finally being improved in the hospital system. Retention, people who feel listened to, that their voice is valued, that they can speak up, that they get challenged appropriately and supported if they make a mistake, you keep those people. How much does it cost us to recruit new people, to onboard them, to train them? What would we save? If we retained the ones we already had, the ones who weren't feeling that that they could be in that zone. Innovation, you want somebody to do something different, to cast abandon to the wind and, and risk looking like a fool, you'd better make it psychologically safe for them to do it, but you're just not gonna get that. It's not safe to be wrong. If it's not safe to be wrong, they won't take risks, which means you'll keep getting exactly what you've always got. You won't get new behavior. Value, you can explore new, new ways of bringing value to your organisation, to your people, to your relationships, if people feel free to speak up. If people don't feel free to speak up, your value exploration is reduced. And of course, my favourite ethics, which is the examples we started with today. If people feel that they can question, that they can actually push back against well, why, why would that be better? It means that all of the people you have in your organisation, we all have these policies around inclusivity now. Let's bring these people into the workplace. Well, that's the first step. But do they have a voice? Do they get listened to? Do you invite their participation in decision making, which would mean that you could then take account of the difference in their perspective? That's what we're challenging organisations with now because that's what that really leads to in terms of ethical, ethical thinking and decision making. So that's the why, does that make sense? How? Edmonstone's text is really good on this. Um, she talks about leaders taking a learning mindset. and talks about situational humility. And that's not flagellating yourself. That's just saying, oh, actually, I don't know. I've never done this before either. I don't know how we're going to get over that cliff. I do know that we've got a good process. We're going to do it together. We're going to have, continue to communicate as we learn stuff. And that's going to inform us and we're going to get better at it as we go. But you don't have to know, look good and be right all the time, that you make it safe for people to question you because you acknowledge that you don't have all the answers all the time. And that may be a difficult cultural shift for some people and particularly for some organizations. I acknowledge that. Um, it's a new way of doing things, but it is a more effective way of creating psych safety. Destigmatizing mistakes and appreciating intelligent risks. An intelligent risk or a mistake is one that nobody's ever done it before, so how could they know it wasn't gonna work? It was well-informed, you thought through. They talk about fail-safe experiments, trying to keep them small scale, acknowledging that's what they are and acknowledging that we're just doing it to learn. And inviting participation. We're all very, very busy. Sometimes you just have to manage, you have to decide and you have to move on. But there must be times when participation is invited, if you expect people to find their voice when they see an issue. They have to have some practice at speaking up and being listened to and being acknowledged and not being discounted or they will not have that confidence. Okay, so that's the theory of it all. Uh, Perfect timing for us to now have a play with that. So what I'd like you all to think about in your small groups, um, please cluster together for this conversation is what's rewarded in your shadow culture? What are the myths, stories, rituals that might be equally influencing behavior as much as your values and your stated policies and your organizational and strategic goals? What might be your shadow culture? How safe is it in your team for your people to offer new ideas, to probe decision-making, to ask questions? and then how might you when you walk out of this room today make it safer to privilege that learning space what little things could you do from now on that would make it a safer space for people to learn if you could have a chat amongst yourselves because you're the experts on this not me that would be great we'll come back together thank you thank you very much i am going to ask each group to nominate a victim, I mean volunteer to speak on behalf of you, to um, to talk about what you what you were discussing, what you were chatting about, and we might start with this group over here, please. And there's a mic. You have a microphone, so what do you think? And re- there's no wrong answers, and it's completely safe to um, to speak up, and there's n- nobody judging whether it's right or wrong.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Like the first question about shadow culture. Uh, we were trying to find the difference first between what's a shadow culture and a culture. Um, but in relation to rituals and stories, uh, we reinforce the Anzac story every single year. Um, it's embedded in, in in our culture and something that we... I wouldn't use the term celebrate, celebrate, but um, and we acknowledge it. We, we use that as a way of inspiring our current soldiers right now. Uh, as far as the other questions are concerned, we actually feel like Defence has made huge inroads in creating... Um, spaces and um, uh, cultural changes to give people the opportunity to raise innovative ideas we're deliberately changing our structures putting people as innovation champions um, giving us the resources and space to actually start presenting ideas and deliberately putting people in environments where we will say you may fail and that's actually a good thing we actually want to know how not to do things um, and so we actually think the the adf culture or arming culture um, is significantly shifting in that direction
0: was there one thing you thought you could do differently when you walked out of here that might help?
1: I think we got that far. I think we got wrapped up on
0: the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, well done. This great. Uh,
5: all right, so what is rewarded in our shadow culture? So we had a, a few mixed ones here, which was interesting. The first thing was um, problem solving, or the ability to solve problems is highly rewarded. Playing rugby is highly rewarded in some areas. Uh, being fit and exercising and being seen to be like active all the time. Uh, Personal innovation was rewarded. Uh, Specialisation was rewarded. So by that I mean soldiers specialising in a specific stream and maybe moving to a special organisation like a support company or a support platoon. Um, This one was mixed. So being seen to work extra hours or long hours or be the last one to go home was rewarded. Uh, but not in all work environments. Some were the opposite. Um, And then on to how safe it is. This one was also interesting in that it was mixed. So uh, about half of us thought that the environment we worked in was safe to offer new ideas. And inside of that group, some believed that whilst it was safe to offer ideas, there would be no action as a result of it anyway. So kind of brings up the point about whether it's pointless. Um, So yeah, that was a mixed bag. and then lastly, how do we privilege the learning space? Um, we think that reinforcing failure, uh, that failure is fine, is, uh, is the first step. And then you demonstrate behavior to support that. So when people fail, you encourage them, um, and you promote what they've just done, and let them know that it's fine. Seek 360 degree feedback. Uh, and then I guess leading like, with a degree of humility, knowing that you don't know everything, uh, and demonstrating that to everybody so that they mimic that behavior.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much, thank you. Next group, we have two groups here, don't we, so.
3: Um, I didn't directly address, or we didn't directly address all three individually, we can't address them holistically. Yeah. Uh, I believe the Defence already has some policy and procedures to maintain this safe for Uh however, we will go back and at these three examples, and one of those examples is complete from the other two, which is the nursing medical practice one, because it has the Hippocratic Oath and the Do No Harm Foundation. So if you take everything else away, you've got this Do No Harm focus uh, to the profession, and regardless of whether it's policy or procedure and you're supposed to speak up, you've got that foundation to say you have to do it because it's what you signed up for, you swore an oath to it. I said, defence already kind of has that with the ANZAC tradition, which we talked about uh, before, it's uh, all about your mates, it's mateship. So i use an example where in Afghanistan, we had an OC uh, who was threatened... Charge by you uh, want to hit an ID effectively. Because if you hit an ID, it meant that you hadn't practised your TDPs and your SOPs and therefore you'd gone against his orders. Uh, then understanding the fact that if you build a mouse, the enemy can build a mouse trap. Uh, well, they change their TDPs and SOPs. <laughs> so we're now the fact that we can't change, the enemy can change, and we need to I mean, so we have some, like, some casualties. So to the point where teams decided that mateship was worth more than charges, uh, and they just did what they, did, uh, what they could do to keep everyone alive. So they would change their TDPs, they did the best thing for the men on the ground, uh, and then they just wouldn't report the fact that they were changing to keep the mission going forward. Uh, and I think that's where that mateship foundation came into it. Uh, I don't think we really have that written down uh, anywhere uh, within defence much, apart from Anzac, Anzac tradition. and. And mateship occasionally in spaces, Um, but I believe that's how we already address it, and we could probably address it more by focusing on that that foundation as opposed to policy and procedure.
0: Awesome! Thank you very much. Thank you. And the next group.
4: We can summarize very quickly based on the great feedback from the three groups before
0: us. (laughs) (laughs) Good try. A small (laughs) clique of
4: of scientists back here, Um, and uh, their whole role is to to ask questions. So. Um, that environment was very safe um, to look at what was happening, why it was happening, how to improve it and how to then write about it. So as a collective uh, it seemed to be lots of knowing about uh, you know there is risk and uh, and that is our job. Um, so on behalf of Defence we've got a great group of people here who, who can look into our problems and help us solve them. Um, as the infantry guy in the group uh, I shared our change of leadership from last year to this year uh, and a um, need for some command group discussion. So we've implemented a practice at the end of each uh, commander's brief that just the other subunit commanders will sit with the boss, throw some dead cats on the table and, uh, and bring them out in that safe place. Uh, and that's been really rewarding. We, we've all kind of knee-jerked as a result of how much of that we didn't have last year, and the encouragement from the boss to throw the ideas out there and really unpack them in that safe place, move forward with the rest of the battalion. Um, and he's invested in a lot of the decisions that subunit commanders have brought to the table and said, I think we should do it this way on behalf of the battalion. And it's really empowered OCs to think uh, and, and offer um, solutions in a really safe way. So that's been really useful.
0: Thank you. Thank you. What, well, great sharing, great ideas, great feedback. And what a unique opportunity for you to hear each other's perspectives on that and this wonderful opportunity to just sit and think. Thinking's compulsory, people. Thinking ethically is also compulsory. So great that you've taken the time out to think about all the things that can impact it. Um, It's a really, really rewarding experience.